Well, the Christmas season is upon us once again. Man, it seems to come sooner and sooner every year. Maybe that's just a sign of getting older. I don't know, but it seems like we've no sooner awakened from our tryptophan-induced Thanksgiving nap and we open our eyes and Christmas comes thundering towards us like a herd of wild horses. It just comes so, so fast. We see the lights and decorations going up all over town, all around us. We, we feel the urgency of uh, people rushing and trying to get presents bought. We cringe at hearing holly jolly Christmas for the 19th time in two weeks everywhere we, we go. Now, sometimes I think that this beautiful, wonderful time of year with all the sights and the sounds of Christmas, I think sometimes there's a danger for that to lull us into a sense that everything really is okay with the world. I mean, look, everybody's celebrating Christmas, so it's all okay. Everything's fine. Well, I hate to be the one to wake anyone from their fantasy world, but allow me to share with you some facts this morning that may help us um, gain a better starting place for this message this morning. Here are some of the results from surveys conducted by the American Bible Society, the Barna Group, and Ligonier Ministries as recent as May of this year. This survey, keep this in mind, is gathered from professing Christians in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. I actually didn't know there were still any professing Christians in the District of Columbia. Shows what I know. So low were the scores of people who engage with their Bible on their own outside of church that those who qualified in this survey as Bible users were those who read their Bible at least three to four times per, I thought it was going to say week, three to four times per year. 44% of the Christians surveyed believe that Jesus sinned while he lived on earth. Can I just tell you, we live in Greenville. We are in a nice little cocoon here. If you haven't traveled far away from this place, some of this may shock you. More than 60% of born-again Christians between the ages of 18 and 39, believe that Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad are equal in the path to salvation. Nearly one-third of evangelicals in the survey agreed that Jesus isn't God. Only 15% of those surveyed believed that the Bible is the actual Word of God and should be taken literally. John Plake, editor-in-chief of the American Bible Society, said, 
Culture tries to bend doctrine to fit its own categories and its own structures. No kidding. You and I live in a time when truth is in the eye of the beholder. Can I just quote judges and say that we are living in a time when every man sees what is right in his own eyes? You and I, I believe, are witnessing the unfolding of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, that says they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I've been accused of a number of things over the years by either people who hate me or people who hate what this church stands for, and uh, all of that is neither here nor there to me. But the one thing I hope I will always be accused of is that I preached the truth of the Word of God in boldness and in love and without apology to anyone. If ever there was a time for pastors to grow a backbone and proclaim God's word in clarity and truth, it is now. The world is losing its mind. Now is the time for us to stand and proclaim the truth. The church actually potentially has its greatest days ahead because it is our job to shine brightest when the world is at its darkest. And so I pray that God will continue to strengthen and empower this church family to be a group of people who stand in the face of whatever comes. And we will not flinch. We will not compromise. We will not back down. Can I just tell you, it's very easy for us to say that in here. God, help us to carry that out in the world out there. So this morning, I'm bringing a very odd Christmas message on what I think is the greatest mystery and the most important doctrine in all of the Bible, without which this time of year would be utterly empty and meaningless. It's the truth that Satan himself has feared from the beginning. It's the truth that causes critics to grind their teeth. And that truth is the doctrine of the incarnation. Incarnation is one of those fancy-sounding church words It's actually not complicated. It's very simple. It literally means in the flesh. Carne, from the word carnivorous, meat-eating animals. It has to do with flesh. Now, you've heard the word reincarnation. Re means to do again, and it means to take on flesh again. Of course, that's an unbiblical uh, belief. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. But you see, reincarnation is a convenient way out of having that hanging over your conscience. You get to skip the judgment if you believe in that. Incarnation, it means to take on flesh. Today, I um, 
hate to disappoint you, I'm not focusing on the baby in the manger or the shepherds in the fields or the star in the sky or the wise men bringing their gifts. But I am focusing, I believe, on the central theme of Christmas. All of those other details are important. They all are important. They all have their place. But unless the one involved in those events was actually God himself in the flesh, none of those events matter in the least. Was that one named Jesus? Was he truly who he claimed to be? What if he wasn't? He went around claiming to be the son of God. He went around claiming all kinds of incredible things. Was he really who he claimed to be? And where did he actually come from? How far back does his beginning go? Matthew only traced his lineage back to uh, Abraham. Mark only went back as far as John the Baptist. Luke gets no further than David, but John, I love John. John pulls back the curtain of eternity. And he declares in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. It's a name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He goes on in verse 14 of John chapter 1 to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you go on to read John's brilliant little letter right at the end of the Bible, 1 John, it's a stirring account of his, his personal relationship with this one named Jesus. He said, our eyes have seen him, our hands have handled him. We've looked into the very eyes of God. John intentionally borrows the three words from the very first words in the Bible. Genesis 1.1 also begins, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've studied through all of that. You go through chapter 1 and 2 and you see all the things that God spoke into existence. And John is saying that this one named Jesus, who is walking among us, he's no ordinary man. He was with God in the beginning, before the beginning of time, before the world was created. This one we celebrate at, Jesus, at Christmas. He, he did not come to be when he was born. He's been around since before the beginning. Jesus made exactly the same claims about himself. In John 8, 58, 
He said, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. We could spend two weeks on that one statement. It's not proper English for us. It kind of hurts my ears every time I hear that. But I have to remind myself of the beauty of what he's saying. He's going back to um, Exodus chapter 3, where God was in the burning bush calling Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses said, who should I say is sending me? And God said, tell them, I am that I am. He needs no other description. I am the eternal existent one who has always been and will always be. I am. It was a name reserved for God himself. And here Jesus in John eight fifty eight is saying, before Abraham was born, surely he would have said, I existed. But he doesn't. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. And I want to tell you, those Jews, that must have bowled them over when they heard that because they knew their scriptures. They knew exactly what he was claiming. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, there's no place recorded in Scripture where Jesus says the exact words, I am God. But I can show you verse after verse after verse where he was called God or he referred to himself as God over and over again. In John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? In John 17, 5, Jesus prayed and said, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. On and on we could go. Listen, I don't agree with everything about C.S. Lewis, which is fine. I don't agree with with everything about anybody, and nobody should agree with me on everything. But I do love this one statement from him. He said the claims that Jesus made in the Bible reduce him to three, only three options. He, he was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord. I agree with him. I've studied, I've researched, I've thought about it. I can't think of any other options. Anyone who was not God in the flesh, who went around saying the things that Jesus said, would have been an absolute nutcase. Or he would have been one terrific liar. Or... He was the Lord of all. This morning, I want to draw your attention to a passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy that is rarely mentioned at Christmas time. But I'd go so far to say that this one verse is perhaps the greatest, most concise declaration of the Christmas story anywhere in the Bible. 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16. 
Hey, um, Kevin, could I ask you to bring me one of those tall chairs from the back, please? I'm, I hate to cause this distraction, but I would appreciate that very much. Thank you, buddy. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Listen to these words. It says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That is one powerful, powerful declaration. There is some discussion. I'm not going to spend time pursuing this because it's, it doesn't matter one way or the other. Some scholars believe that uh, these lines here were uh, an early Christian hymn. I can certainly see that, the, the beauty in all of this. And when you study it deeper, you can see how the first and last lines match in certain ways and the second and second to last lines match up and so on. But that's not for today. Let me read this again so we can just hear these words once more. And without controversy... Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. There's really one main phrase here that I want to focus on, but let me just explain very quickly some of these first lines. He says, without controversy. Yours may say, without question or by common consent or by common confession. Those are all accurate uh, understandings of what is being said here. In other words, what is about to follow is the most scrutinized and most agreed upon truth by all those who name the name of Christ. This truth is obvious, he's saying. It's obvious to all who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no dispute here, he's saying. There's no question about this. All who have been born again by the Spirit are in agreement. We're all in consent on this. And those who don't believe this are giving evidence that they have not been born again by the Spirit of God. Immediately preceding this statement in uh, verse 15, it says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. By the way, this is not the house of God. This is the house of God. Don't ever mix the two up. We don't come to the house of God. The house of God comes to the building. It's not a minor issue. That's fundamental. That's foundational to everything. When we leave here, we're not leaving the church. The church is leaving the building. So he says, 
I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, wherever you are. You're working, you're swimming, you're eating. Which is the church of the living God. That's us. The pillar and foundation of the truth. So what is the the truth here that is to be the foundation of the church? It's what Paul immediately goes on in verse 16 and says. He gives us the answer. It's this confessional statement that we just read here in verse 16. In this one verse, we see the deity, the humanity, and the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ in this one verse. And we won't get to all those today, but God willing, we've got a few more weeks ahead to explore all of this. He says, without controversy, and then he says, great is the mystery of godliness. The word mystery here is not referring to anything mystical or magical. It's not that kind of thing at all. The word mystery, when used in the New Testament, means one of two things. It means a truth that God has kept hidden in the past, but has now revealed to mankind. Or it means a truth that God is still hiding from unbelievers, but he has opened the eyes of believers to be able to see and understand that truth. Did you know that there were things hidden from the prophets of old? That Hebrews 1 tells us they searched diligently to try to understand and they never could. But they've been revealed to you and me through Christ. That's astounding. So you and I have a leg up on Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and all those guys. We know things through Christ that they longed to know. They were hidden from them. They were mysteries at that time. And in the right time, God has revealed them by his spirit. He goes on to say, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, here's here's the phrase I want to focus on. God was manifested in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. The fact that God came to us in the person of his son, that he came to us in the flesh, this verse is saying that is an indisputable truth. It's a historical fact. But how he came is still beyond comprehension. Uh, I cannot wrap my mind around it. I couldn't explain it to you if I tried. I can make attempts And all of them will fall miserably short of what probably really needs to be said. And so this is one of those areas, I know he came, but how all that transpired, I read everything that the word tells me about that, but the rest of it I have to assign to one of those categories that I say, God, this is holy business. I leave this with you, and I trust you with it, and I believe 100% what you say, whether I ever understand it or not. This is the foundation of our salvation. This is what Christmas 
is really all about the miracle of Christ's incarnation coming in the flesh so that sinful man could be reconciled to God. And we'll dig more into that in just a moment. He goes on to say justified in the spirit. It means it could also be vindicated in the spirit. Uh, It's saying that the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh, even though it's laughed at, it's ridiculed by the unbelieving world, the, uh, the seemingly outrageous claims that Jesus made about himself being God in the flesh, about that he was going to rise from the dead. People can laugh all they want, but what this is saying is the Holy Spirit vindicated him when he raised Jesus from the dead. He was vindicated. Everything he claimed that was going to happen, the Holy Spirit said, here you go. There's proof. So whenever you hear some highbrowed academic attacking the claims of Jesus, or when you hear some liberal clergyman denying the deity of Jesus, remember that someone far greater than that critic, someone far wiser than that agnostic bishop has vindicated the Lord Jesus Christ and has already proven his claims to be absolutely true. The verse goes on. I'm not going to take time to dig into all of this. I'll let you explore it on your own. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the Gentiles or among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was received up in glory. This truth described here in 1 Timothy 3, 16, that God was manifested in the flesh. I believe, this is just me talking, I believe It is the greatest, most astounding, most important event in all of history. The eternal Son of God, who was always with the Father from eternity past, lowers himself and takes on human flesh. The one who created the vast span of the galaxies and holds them in the palm of his hand was reduced to a single cell placed in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit and born as a defenseless baby. And yet the Bible tells us that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It was the first time in history that a baby was older than its mother. Normally the baby looks like the mother, but in this case, the mother looked like the baby. No wonder songwriters compose lyrics like Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. How in the world can we ever fully comprehend this? The incarnation is not only the greatest event for those of us who believe, it is also the greatest stumbling block for those who don't believe. And it is the single truth that has been the terror of Satan from the very beginning. Why? Because the coming of the Savior into the world who would eventually conquer Satan was prophesied directly to Satan himself all the way back in the garden. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God came and was 
um, pronouncing judgment on them. And he spoke the following words to Satan directly to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He said, I will put enmity or rivalry or hostility between you and the woman. Watch this. Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this statement, this bizarre statement in Genesis 3.15, God was promising the Savior who would one day come to destroy Satan. But the way in which the Savior would come is very unusual. It says that he would come from the woman's seed. Yours may say offspring. It's okay, but seed is the right word. Seed is a very, very important word throughout Scripture. We all know women don't produce the seed. The man produces the seed. What we clearly see here in this very first prophecy in the Bible is the foretelling of the virgin birth of Christ. This Savior would come not from the seed of a man, but from the seed of a woman. He would be born of an earthly mother without an earthly father. Joseph was his earthly parent, but he was not his biological father. Because if Jesus had come from the bloodline of an earthly father, he would have inherited Adam's sin nature like we all did from our fathers. This unique birth was foretold before Jesus was ever born. Some quick examples, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew 1, 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I just love the honesty of this. Joseph wrestled with this. Wouldn't you? If your fiance came and said, Hey, hon, I got some news for you. Um, I'm pregnant. And um, it's from the Holy Spirit. You'd be looking through the yellow pages for, you know, some serious help for that girl. I love the fact that the scripture doesn't hide the humanity of these people involved in these events. Joseph's head was spinning. But it says, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife 
and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. This baby was unlike any other baby that has ever been born. I don't know if you ever caught it, but the Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's not repeating the same thing twice. A child being born refers to his complete humanity. A son being given refers to his complete divinity. This child who was born that day was brand new, but the son who was given that day had existed with the father for all eternity. Jesus did not become the son when he was born. He had always been the son. That's why the beauty of that statement just cracks me every time I hear it. Unto us a child is born. Okay, well, that's a routine event. Oh, but wait a second. Also, unto us a son is given. The eternal son of God. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, listen, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Colossians 1.17, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Jesus embodied both complete humanity and complete divinity. He had to be both or his coming would mean, would, would mean nothing. He had to be fully man to have the position as substitute, but he had to be fully God to have the position as Savior. But Jesus didn't just come to be born. He came for a far greater mission than that. The Word tells us that the main reason Jesus came and did what he did was to fulfill the will of his Father. But Underneath that overarching reason that he came and the reason that he lived were two main reasons that he came. 1 John 3, 5 gives us the first one. Christ appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 John 3, 8 gives us the second reason he came. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of of the devil. Amen. Jesus came to save us from our sin and to destroy the works of the devil. This sinless son of God wrapped himself in human flesh so he could know what my sin is, die for it, but not be tainted by it. He became what I am so that I might become what he is. He became the Son of Man so that I might become the Son of God. In order for sins to be washed away, we know there had to be a sinless sacrifice. He, the sinless one, took our sin upon himself and gave us, the sinners, his perfect righteousness. Folks, I want to tell you, if you've never taken advantage of that deal... 
you're missing out on the greatest deal of a lifetime. To have all your sin taken from you by the sinless Son of God and for Him to put a robe of righteousness upon you so that God looks at you and from that moment on, He never sees a single one of your sins again. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he came. He came to carry our sins to the cross and take the punishment for them as though he had committed them himself. Oh, we know these words from Isaiah 53, but let's lean in and listen to these again. Feel the weight of this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is what the incarnation is all about. And that's why it's the most important event in history. There's nothing that comes close. Oh, I love to think about the baby in the manger. I love to think about angels singing praises and shouting glory in the heavens to the shepherds. I love to think about Herod's fear when he heard that a rival king had come. I love to think about the wise men making their trip. All of those things are so wonderful, but none of that matters. None of that matters if Jesus is not the eternal son of God. See, you and I are saved because of this. You're not saved because you're a little better than everybody else. You're not saved because you try harder to be good than others do. You're saved because Jesus came because he sacrificed himself on the cross and he paid for your sins. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. What was the debt that all of us owed? It was because of Adam's sin. We were all born into sin. Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. Because of what they did, all of us, all of us were born into sin. In fact, sin is not a, 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 a minor offense to God. When we were born into sin, some people wrongly assume all of us are born children of God. I'm sorry. We weren't. We were born enemies of God. You say, me? Oh, no, I'm a sweet little southern gal. I've taught Sunday school my whole life. I've never used a cuss word. Good on you, honey. Good on you. If you're not saved, you're the enemy of God. And as enemies of God, there was nothing we could do to remedy the situation. We were eternally cut off from God. Aliens and strangers without God and without hope in this world. The only thing that could pay for man's sin was a sinless man. 
And that's why Jesus had to come in the flesh to live the sinless life we were unable to live and to die the death we were supposed to die. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. 1 Peter 1.18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Listen, the incarnation ought to make us weep and rejoice at the same time. I remember when our son Nick was born. Caroline was almost three. She didn't understand any of this that was going on, but she was trying really hard. And I remember after things had calmed down, uh, Sandy invited Caroline to come and sit up on the bed with her and to hold her baby brother in her arms. And as she did, I'll never forget. She kept looking at him and looking back at us. And she was laughing and crying at the same time. She, she didn't know which emotion to go with. She felt them both. It's the same thing we should feel when we think of what Christ has done for us. It should break us. And it should fill us with joy. The incarnation is the most powerful event in history. Listen, it was more than just a happening. It was more than just an event. The incarnation was the tangible expression of God's grace to you. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation, has appeared to all men. There's so much wrapped up in that word grace. It was no casual thing for Jesus to come to this earth. It cost him everything. The price was unimaginably high. And God willing, we'll get more into that next week in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus came by his grace to bring salvation to you. But you have to believe and receive it. I'm closing now. I want to ask you, have you ever done that? It's very clear in Scripture. There are some things in Scripture I've studied for years. I'm not any closer to understanding them. They're so far above my head. But this, this, the gospel, it's so clear a child can understand it. The only reason you won't understand this is if you don't want to. Listen quickly to this, John 3.18. Jesus said, He who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
He said in John 6:40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And he concludes in John 6:47 by saying, most assuredly, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Listen, listen. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever understood the vital importance of the incarnation? Have you ever realized the eternal impact that his coming into the world has on you? His coming, excuse me. His coming changes everything for all who believe in him. It redeems our past, it guides our present, and it secures our future. Do you want to know the greatest gift you could give this Christmas? Give your life to Jesus. He already gave his to you. I pray that this, boy, I've just skimmed the surface today, but I pray that this Christmas, the beautiful truth of the incarnation will mean more to us than it ever has before. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, I pray that you would uh, take what has been said this morning straighten anything that has come out crooked, fix anything that has been said wrong, and make it clear to every ear and every heart right now. For those of us who have believed on Jesus and received him as our Savior, oh Lord, I pray that this matter of the incarnation of Christ condescending and coming down to live in this sinful world, to die and to save us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would just have a fresh awakening of the beauty of what this actually means. For anyone who has never believed, I pray that right now in these moments, you would draw their heart to you. I just want to say to you that in these couple of closing songs we're about to sing before all this is over, if God is speaking to you about anything and you would like to speak to someone about that, I will be at the back. We'll have ladies at the back. Uh, If you ladies would prefer to speak to another lady, uh, we invite you to slip out of your seat and to come and find the help that you need. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. 
Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.